0: want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, Everything from large, complex mergers and acquisitions, capital raising, joint ventures, strategic alliances, real estate, affiliate and sponsorship deals, and more, including smaller deals that you can do without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for over 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Quest podcast. Salvatore M. Buscemi is a notable figure in the world of finance and real estate. He's made a name for himself through his impressive portfolio of investments and his leadership roles in various investment offices. He started his career at Goldman Sachs in the investment banking division. He currently serves as CEO and co-founding partner of HRN, LLC, a private multifamily investment office. His third book, Investing Legacy, How the .001% Invest, provides a glimpse into the investment biases and non-quantitative drivers for investment decision-making among the world's wealthiest and most powerful families, commonly referred to as the 0.001% of society. Sal, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Corey. It's a pleasure and a privilege.
0: So listen, there is
1: so much in your background I want to talk about
0: and what you're doing now and this different approach on how the 0.001% approach investing but before we get to any of that, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you mm-hmm. want to be growing up? Because I don't know, uh, yeah, banking and investments and whatever might not
1: have been it back then, but you tell me. That's a good question. I thought I wanted to become a doctor. And I had some friends whose parents, between junior and senior years, gave me a book. It was called Confessions of a Medical Heretic. And it was written in 1977, and I was reading it probably about 17 years later. And after I read that book, I was complete—I was completely distraught that I did not want to finish being a pre-med major and I wound up being a pre-med major and I completed and I had to spend my senior year crushing about 24 credits and then 20 credits and then I was also an athlete. But what really happened and I'll get back to the how it happened is that even when I was 12 and I was younger, my father and my mom saved for my brother and I's college education. And what they did back in the day in the late 70s, if you can remember, Maybe you're old enough to remember that, the zero-coupon bonds. and But at the time, they were paying a lot more, probably. This is during the Jimmy Carter days when rates were higher, so you could actually yeah. save and put a lot away. And so I remember going to the bank, and we'd have the safe deposit box at the local bank. And I'd go in there with my father, and there'd be a pair of like kindergarten scissors, and you would actually clip the coupon, Corey. I don't know if you remember that. And then you put it in an envelope, free, free address. Set it out, and then they send a check back, and and that's how it was done. And we're learning those investment conventions of compounding interest and things at the time. My father was a physician, so he didn't really know too much about he didn't really know too much about bond math, to be honest with you. He was very smart in other things. Sure. However, a lot of you know these people. There's a different relative, I guess you can say, mindset around finance that most medical professions have. But he was open-minded enough to know that he ha- he had to learn. And if you look at the similarities between the investors back then and today, it's pretty much the same. They're trying to make some money, but they're also gambling to try to get risk. Although there's a lot more gambling today than there was ever before, probably because of low interest rates. And that is really where I got the entrepreneurial bug in my head. And I was always um, very entrepreneurial growing up, doing my own businesses, mowing, mowing lawns and things like that. But it wasn't until fast forwarding, I was 17 years old and I had an internship with probably one of the most respected surgeons for the New York Knicks and I passed out holding a tibula, or fibula rather, in the cadaver room at Beth Israel Hospital in New York City. Fast forward, I tell the story in the book, Investing Legacy, but I I spoke to this doctor and I had to be very frank with him because it was a pivotal time in my life where I didn't know what I wanted to do next, but I knew that I could not go to medical school. I would would not do well, it just made me sick to my stomach. It was like trying to give shellfish to someone who was allergic to shellfish. And that really made the pivotal role at that moment is if I don't take a step now to change this direction, I might not be ha- happier later in life. And looking at some people who are in, are my age now, forty eight, but back then, when seventeen, they would say things to you under their breath and say, "I don't think you really want to do this. I don't think you really want to go to med school. I'm telling you, you don't want to go to med school. I think there are better opportunities out there." And so the rest is history.
0: Wow. We're gonna we're gonna follow the history through a little bit, but before we do sure. that, one other question: Looking back, what was your first deal of any type that you can remember? It could be something.
1: Small when you were a kid or early in your career, whatever is the deal that comes to mind? That's a very good question. As a kid, it's a deal. I don't, I remember, I don't know if it was really a deal. My father always taught me to be very forthright. I remember I I was mowing lawns and this one guy only gave me $10 to mow probably close to half an acre. And (laughs) he really shamed me and guilted me to go across the street to ask to negotiate for more money and I got it. So I don't know if that's really a deal or not, but that was definitely a win at that point, young in your career, that this is a, interpersonal, relational business, no matter what we do, raising capital or deploying capital, it's not transactional like Bitcoin.
0: Love it. Love it. And listen, it was a, yeah, the first quarter, unquote. it was the first negotiation at least. Uh,
1: yeah, first negotiation uh, at least. That's Yeah, that's, that's negotiation. what separates the men from the boys and the girls <laughs> and the women. <laughs> the love commission. it, love it. All right, so
0: you ended up going on the investment banking side, right? You were at Goldman yeah. Sachs, and that's great, especially when, when you were there. It was, I remember, that's uh, funny, I had an office on Wall Street for many years, and there was a time when Goldman Sachs was that private partnership, that cream mm-hmm. of the crop, was, and I'm not saying anything bad about Goldman Sachs now, but it's obviously evolved. Gone public on down market in various ways or whatever. It's a little different than it is, but certainly that was a you know I mean, still back then that was a plum job place to work in the traditional mode. So tell us about that experience and then what had you evolve into moving
1: out of that and some different views? Yeah, no, that's actually a very good point. So I actually networked, I honestly, networked my way into the firm. The same doctor I was telling you about, who I told I could not do this, I actually had a brother who just uh, made partner at Goldman Sachs and suggested I talk to him. And the story continues from there. But I also had some personal circumstances happen. At 24, I suddenly lost my father. And at that point, he was 56 and he was still working. And I made some life decisions at that point, being the oldest son. I was thinking to myself, how do I want this to end? And so I promised myself before I was 30, I would would run my own balance sheet with an institutional fund. And so at 29, I raised $30 million, which is a lot of money from this fund, which is almost 10% of their AUM at the point. Maybe about eight to basically during the last credit crisis become the the kitchen sink for Bear Stearns when we bought all of their rough defaulted mortgage product, and that's really the claim to fame that I have. How you build a leverageable brand doing that? It was fun. It was tedious. It's not easy, but the investors were very happy. And then we moved on and did the same thing out west when there was a lot of. If you remember the whole Desperate housewife, the whole Real Housewives of Orange County started during the. 2005, 2006, when you had a lot of mortgage brokers in Irvine, California, driving Ferraris, they were making a lot of money. Nobody in California was really working. They were just refinancing their homes or working as mortgage brokers and realtors. When that popped, there was tremendous opportunity, of course, and we went out there for that. And without going too far into the story, we've always been very practical and pragmatic in relation to how we buy real estate and getting into it because of my background into it. But just going out on my own and doing something entrepreneurial, not asking friends and family for money. <laughs> But more so, knocking up and down Park Avenue um, wow. develops a different type of character. Yeah,
0: so let's talk about that a little
1: bit because even the
0: the concept. I mean, I've had this discussion with various couple of people on the podcast that in general, d- doing raising money from other people, right? There are, there are certain there are only some people not only who are successful at it, but even. Can deal with it. I remember we we raised. I've done a couple of real estate investment funds, not not big, a few million dollars here and there. We did some small condo conversions of what some multifamilies, things like that. Did well on some of those deals, but then we raised the fund in two thousand seven, <laughs> and and do I need to say anything more? Yeah, way more smarter people than us got wiped out. We actually felt great that we even on that fund we got over sixty percent of the money back to the investors, which we thought might be gone. But but it does raise this this thing about what had you. Be the kind of person that could go out and raise significant capital from people that you didn't know, or that you not friends and family,
1: right? I think if you look at it, people hire you at Goldman Sachs and other investment firms because you have much more of a dynamic personality. There are some firms that you'll know, rate you on quantitative and everything. But when you're dealing with a partnership and they have credo, you never let your partner down and you have this holy grail it becomes more of an effort of salesmanship. And if you can cross-pollinate things within an institution, that's really how you make the big bonuses. And I think a lot of people don't understand that salesmanship is a big part of this. I see a lot of real estate investors, I was telling you this the other day, when we were talking, I was at IMN, you have all these like machines, these guys coming over, but because they have a multi-family deal, they come around and they show you numbers and math. It's not real estate has a human component to it and it always will. And I always judge people by many things, but the, the ability for salesmanship and negotiation and influence is very important. That's a skill set. I don't care if you're a founder or if you're an investment banker. They call it coverage banking. Back in the old day, that's what we carry on today. Because that interactivity is what gets people to write the tickets for the deals. And if you don't have that relationship or any sort of fundamental understanding of what your investors are and how they how to communicate with them, it's not going to be a good. It's not going to. It's not going to be a very easy voyage for you. And I see a lot of people who are very quantitatively focused. But nobody ever got rich by putting together a spreadsheet, right? People have in the stock market, but that's usually a flash in the pan. I'm just saying there are skill sets that a lot of people are lacking today because we do not have the salesmanship or the understanding that they need to do that. They think that they can wear busted-up shoes and look like Sam blankton Smith, at the age of 50 going around asking for money because they're multifamily operators and that's what they're supposed to look like with the pinky rings on and everything but really what it comes down to is that you need to be able to you need to be able to be much more dynamic as it relates to not only being an operator or being a leader but also being a salesman
0: yeah there are only so many people who can make all kinds of money on the on the big short because they're because they've done a quantitative analysis on where the market's gonna go. It's
1: also a once in a generation trade too that yeah. a lot of people wait for. It's like waiting for the exact lottery ticket numbers to happen and then buying the ticket. Exactly, 100%. All right,
0: so talk to us about what you're doing now and remind me, I i, I forgot to look at the wire, did,
1: did you make the jump from Goldman to be an entrepreneur? Or was there an- Yeah, I went right from Goldman to being an entrepreneur with my oh, first $30 fund. And then after that, I'll tell you a really funny story. The whole market worked itself out in about 2013 and there were a lot of cash out distributions that our investors had. And I actually was thinking about moving into some other assets, such as necessity-based retail, CVSs, but only in middle America, right? And I was, this is when you knew things were getting hotter because I was being, and I don't mean to offend anyone on this, but I was being outbid by a bunch of doctors and surgeons who didn't really understand bond math, and they thought that we were being hot by outbidding some guy, Goldman, who they thought they were smarter. Now, these things are traded at a 10 cap going all the way back to Moses, right? And these guys were bidding at like an 8.25, which means that I would never have been able to get my investors out alive. So I folded and I gave the money back. And now this is also a very interesting time in our financial history, because this is when the ascent of Bitcoin started happening. So now I'm like, What's happened? I'm going to lose all this. I knew I lost half of it. Like It wasn't me, but I gave it back. And I know that some people um, who are not as affluent and not that sophisticated wound up betting the farm on it. And the code word is when somebody is so evangelical about something and they say, but I just have a little bit of money in it. That is code for they bet the farm. And you find out (laughs) later through the airport when you run into the spouse being like, oh, he lost it all in these coins and everything. It's really disgusting. But- what we did was we pivoted because a lot of the families that I was investing money for, one of them was a very prominent life science investor. He's actually one of the founding fathers of venture capital. And he suggested, Sal, why don't you start focusing on what we're doing? And because of the relationships I had and the good reputation of doing what I said I was going to do, I'd go to a lot of these conferences and I would be making money. I would be making investments with my own accountant to these companies. And then finally, my friend Bill Workmaster said, He's a partner now. You should start your own fund. So we started a fund. And that's been very successful as we go through the marks right now. Because most of them were his picks through life sciences. And you have to look at his network. He used to be the head of Texas State Teachers Pension Life Science Investing for their, for their fund. So he was able to see superior deal flow. And so is my other partner as well. And when you put that together, you understand that these are opportunities that you can't. You have to find a reason to get into. And you get into quickly so what we what i had to come up with the idea of how am i going to put all of this together and over the course of the pandemic a lot of thinking i i came to the conclusion of two things that we were going to start this new family office called and hrn is mostly venture right now we're going to real estate when the time comes but right now we haven't been and we made about 12 investments in the names and they all follow the same convention here but really what it was that took the investors over the over, over to the dark side if you will Um, Real estate investors, I discovered, all had a gateway to life sciences through philanthropy. And that philanthropy is usually poorly run, very expensive, emotionally driven, but it doesn't really get anywhere. You don't really know if the last 10 cents or whatever dollar after Kim Kardashian gets her affiliate split, what that really looks like towards the end. Is it going to a guy in a lab? Is it even supporting something that fits your value system? So when we were able to bring in my two other partners and showcase the deal flow and everything, their success and we were able to explain to these families that they could invest in these companies directly just like they did in our real estate deals it really turned things around and one of the one of the things i needed to do to make this a fully functional multi-family office with the 13 families that we have right now is we had to make it very interactive and so i'm very outspoken on this and i actually wrote the book on it too that i'm showing you here but this is a handbook that i put together to formalize and outline the boundaries of the relationship for anyone who wants to invest with us you have to read the handbook first and give a redo, right? Yours is on the way, I know, but you'll give a good review, <laughs> And that's really, really part of the whole thing is that you're building a culture here around it. if you're able to build a culture around something in a community, it lasts much longer. And that's what I learned during the partnership days at Goldman Sachs. Makes yeah. sense?
0: No, no, totally. I love the outlook. It's clear. So let's so let's delve into this thing that you're alluding to now. And also we talked about in the bio that 0.001%. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the difference? Uh, in our, when we had our pre-call, I told you we represent, we've done work with hundreds of investment advisors helping yeah. them break away, helping them set up. And there's a lot of investment advice out there, not only from those folks, but also from people on TV and all this kind of stuff and whatever. Diversified yeah. portfolios in the stock market, yes, a lot of people to yeah, yeah, yeah. real estate investing in the value of that.
1: But, and even some alternatives that relatively wealthy folks have. Some alternatives, some alternatives, just some alternatives, right? Exactly. Meanwhile, Yale has 90% percent of their endowment into alternatives? What do they know that you don't, right? And that's the way you got to look at it.
0: Yeah. So so that, <laughs> that's what I, I want to get to. Alts are in the big investment banks, right? Any of the wirehouses, whatever. They're heavily, heavily vetted, very limited opportunities. One of the reasons why some of the investment advisors we represent go, go independent is that they want to be able to provide more d- different alternatives to their clients for investments yeah open Speaking architecture
1: the, yeah 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 the traditional model really is the sushi fun. menu yeah it's not working yeah. anymore i get it yeah. so talk to me based on my experience cory is that there's an evolution of the investor anyone over 100 million dollars is not looking for extra wealth right now they're looking to leave some sort of a legacy or even if they've inherited that they're looking to expand upon that legacy whether that's something that is related to buying a sports team or some sort of a statement class asset, they want to be able to show that they're smart enough, richer, and more attractive than their peers. And if you look at people who are like around the $10 million mark, they've not evolved yet. They're still buying Porsches. $10 million really isn't a lot of money in America today. Obviously, we're starting to see that. So people are very insecure at that level due to the fact that they have, there's very little things for them to invest into as of recently until interest rates went up. Think about it. They were swinging for the fences. The government's, the Fed forced them to take risk. With zero interest rates. Otherwise, we've never had NFTs. Nobody would need NFTs. So right, right. you'd be surprised how many people, but it's an entirely different mental, it's an entirely different headspace with a lot of these people who are wealthier. They're looking to enhance and build their legacy or put another paragraph in their obituary where the person who's 10 million is still anxious. They still want to get the Porsche. They're still insecure. They're not really sure what they're doing and they're scared of anything happening to it. It, it affects people differently, but there's a maturation that happens. I like to say, once you hit the $100 million mark, you're not leapfrogging over each other right now to buy Porsches or or anything else of any sort of discretion, scenario expenses. Yes,
0: yeah, that's great. So what are you doing instead? You talked in general about legacy, what are, like Oh yeah. About- oh no,
1: sure. If you look at if you look at what we're doing, we're putting all of our families that in the investments that we're going into. And those are class A statement assets. Okay. These are assets that your friends talk about you behind your back and say, I know Corey. He's the guy that owns the skyscraper. Now nobody knows how much you own of this Bank of America building. But you're an owner now. It could be 100%. It could be 20%. It could be 0.2%. Right? Nobody knows. Same thing with professional sports teams, because just like how the poor and middle class like to walk around with Hermes belts and they like to they like to execute their status that way, for lack of a better term, these guys like to do it too by showing their peers what investments they're into that are better than theirs, and it's really a form of how connected you are. And that connection is really based to a form of, you know, how attractive you are. Remember the world isn't driven by greed. According to Charlie Munger, is probably one of my favorite quotes, is driven by Andy. Let's take
0: a break from the show for a minute so I can tell you about an incredible resource my team and I have put together for you. Secrets of Deal-Driven Growth, Creative Ways to Grow Your Business Even in Challenging Times, is a powerful ebook that helps you take Quest podcast episodes and apply them to your own life and business. This is the ideal tool for anyone looking for creative ways to grow as dealmakers. And you can get yours now. It's as easy as heading to coreycupford.com slash workbook and downloading your copy. While you're there, you can also consider joining our dynamic, deal driven community of founders, experts, small business owners, and entrepreneurs. Now back for the show. I want to break this down because obviously, one of the things I'm always interested in is, and I work personally myself and I try to work with my clients on is to have, whether it's investment decision, deal decisions, I even, clients come to me and they're thinking about doing a deal, whether it's an acquisition, whether it's an investment deal, whatever. I'll always ask them why, what's what, what's driving it. And that's not They a don't give you the straight answer though. They don't give you the no, Often they yeah. don't. And in fact, in fact yeah. sometimes they don't even really know it, at least on a conscious level themselves. Sometimes they do and mm-hmm. they don't admit it. Sometimes they're yeah. you're not clear. But I think it's important because sometimes at whatever level it is, people get to a point where they figure out they've achieved all this stuff and they figure out, Why am I still not happy, whatever? And what was driving that? I think that when we use the word vanity, that could easily be looked at as a negative thing. And sometimes it is because, but sometimes also this idea to leave a legacy is really important to people in ways
1: that impact companies and societies and things very beneficial. Right. So I think that's really what it is. It's like having a legacy after death. And anybody who says that's not the case, and you have to wonder, you get to wonder why anybody would want to go out to cure therapy for for cancer, for example, one of our CEOs is Dr. James Allison, 2018 Nobel Prize winner. He has a whole University of Texas foundation and organization named after him. And really putting this on a very simplistic level, if you were to look at Jimmy Buffett, rest his heart, but his catalog went up in sales 7,000% after he died, 7,000%. Marilyn Monroe has been dead long before Twitter, but she has 1.8 million followers on Twitter. (laughs) <laughs> Somebody's making money there, right? And right. my bet is, should any of the, the sports greats pass on, like Michael Jordan, he will sell probably 10,000% more sneakers than he did when he was alive. So legacy is a big deal today. And it's something where people are looking for that, that impact. At the worst point, no matter how nefarious you think he is, Bill Gates is doing something like this, it's the ability to change the world that very few people have the ability to, to do. And if you can put your name on the side of a library and tell all your friends who thought you just inherited something, now all of a sudden you're in a different space with all these people because it's not about vanity, it's about status. Mercedes is a status symbol, right? It's status. That's what it is. That's why people buy. This is why LVMH is one of the best performing stocks is because people love status. It's a function of culture too, right? And that that's not going anywhere for a while. That's hardwired in our DNA. And if people can decode that and really answer to it, then it makes a lot of sense. I will tell people jokingly with the families that, that I talk to, and they "What say, I've had some guys think, what are you really selling? What are you really selling, Sal? What are you really selling? I just look them in the face and say, I'm, I'm a merchant of legitimacy. You want to be involved in these deals. This is where you can brag to your friends that your CEO has 15 exits, and this will be his eighth unicorn. He's got all these big investors in it. Fine, and people do that. And we've actually spent... Uh, with the real estate deals that we have, lots of money on professional editing for people to see these videos, not to make me look good, to make them look good, right? Because there's nothing like a, and I'll just be very frank with you. I have a an investor in this who's recently divorced and single, and every time he shows that video to someone, he gets a second date. <laughs> Does that make sense? Well, I love okay. that. Okay.
0: And, and, the, and the other thing that I, I found <laughs> is yeah. that it goes with with the status and with the is the conversation of access. Right? Mm -hmm. Because that's the other thing that folks want. You can tell me if
1: you agree. Yeah, I agree. Nobody wants to. Full access to opportunities, access to certain rooms, all that kind of stuff. And and one of the smartest things I ever did when moving to Miami is that I befriended through some people I know in New York, a partner at a law firm. And I said, look, let me use your law firm conference room for two days. These are real investors. You get to talk to them and everything. And we did a show and tell with a bunch of investors in it. We had a bunch of Zooms come in. And it was, to me, what I wanted to put together was a melting pot of all the people from L.A., all the people from New York coming together to meet each other. And that galvanized not only our brand, but also not only elevated our status, but it made everybody feel happy to see who they were in bed with, who were, in most cases, more successful than they were. Photos were taken, Instagram photos, everything for the gram. It's done. Very wealthy people do this, but in a very discreet way.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So let me ask you a question. It it would be fair to say
0: that out of the thousands, tens of thousands of listens we have, just like the rest of the, although they, I'm sure they skew average high, higher income than and, and higher wealth than than most people, just because of people interested in deals. Certainly the far, far, far majority of them are not going to be in the $100 million. Right, right. So what are some of the lessons that in, in working with these families at that level that maybe folks who aren't quite at that level yet, but would like to get there can apply in their lives and in their investing and in their decision-making now?
1: I'll tell you, if we're getting into venture and we're doing anything right now, there's two rules that I look at. And regardless of the industry, just pre- pretend you're agnostic. I was having this conversation with a family that I met at IMN, very wealthy Tibber family, actually, lumber family. Yeah. And they were looking to get into venture. And they're like, what are your... And he had experience. Don't get me wrong. He was a smart guy, hired by the family as a CIO. So he and I are like just getting along swimmingly. And he said, what... Tell me, what do you look at when you look at a venture deal? I know you like life science. Nobody likes to be reminded of high school biology and chemistry, right? <laughs> Corey, nobody really does. It's hard to do that. And I tell people, I'm like, this is the best way to do it before it even goes any deeper than not even from my desk or even my partner's desk is. I want a founder in any startup to have had multiple exits because they have the maturity, the dexterity, and the network to see things through, no matter where we are in the cycle, and we've seen this before with my one of my CEOs, Fred Nazem. This is the 69th exit that he's been a part of. All right, he's almost 80. He'll shoot me for saying that, but he's had an illustri- illustrious career, and those are the guys we like to invest with and alongside, or into in that case as well. And the second one is that they need to be led by smart families, not institutions. I don't want to see a I don't want to see a Sequoia on there. That's really meaningless to me. They'll probably just write one check and forget about it. What I want to see is an in kind investor. So that means if it's a life science investor, I want to see a life science family office that understands that space and not really add, you know, can add a lot of value, not just by looking over the shoulder, but, you know, more like reputational value of getting contracts, commercializations, and things like that. And if you see that, those two things, then that's your go. If you start looking for excuses, he's a good guy, he's trying, you're paying for tuition at that point. And that means that you're going to have some very awkward thanksgivings to come and i'm just telling you this from experience from what i've seen you can't give someone who doesn't have a track record or anything and we saw this with sam blank sam sbf and all these guys they were just too young and immature and they were running around and i saw this two years ago at our basel during nft there were people cranking up fifteen thousand dollar bills at the fountain blue bar it's a nice bar but it was not their money does that make sense they were just it was not real money to them It was a function of many things that I won't get into. Zero interest rates could have been part of that. But it is. you look at maturity and your CEOs and they've been through, and those are the guys you want to bet on because they're the ones who are going to navigate the tough seas going across. And I think too many times in Shark Nation, Shark Tank Nation and everything, they think that if you have a great idea, it's going to be a great idea. But remember, that's on TV and they'll think very... None of those companies ever went public or acquired. They're all consumer discretionary. And we like hire to barrier entries businesses like life sciences and technology. We recently did SpaceX too, which is a, a privilege for us. In, in every case, to be able to get invited to participate in that, and that's only because of the reputation that we had doing what we said we were going to do. And that goes back to being involved with the families and the investors and always talking to them. And I have a T-shirt I wear since game show host because that's really what I am. I spend all my time. In front of the Zoom, talking to guys like you or investors, new or old, because that's the highest and best use of my time. Does that
0: make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it totally does, and, okay. and listen, that that contrast. I made the comment on Shark Tank. It's interesting. I was at an event with Kevin O'Leary, and he's. I think he said this on the show. I said, was
1: too. We I bet you it wasn't the same event, but mine was more awkward. Go ahead. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Oh, that's funny. <laughs> but but one one thing he did say, which I thought was right on the mark, and it gets it makes a distinction on that show. He said basically what Shark Tank does is it reduces the the customer acquisition costs for companies significantly. And that's what yeah, makes, that's what makes see investments worthwhile because what they're doing is they take it because of the popularity of the show and the way they get it out there and the, I mean every show even the ones that don't get investment get booms of orders right yeah. and then some of them screw it up and some of them can continue it but the point is that's it's free marketing what that show yeah. does it, yeah. it reduces customer acquisition costs which which is an important metric especially in consumer you know and mm-hmm. those type of businesses. And that's and that's why the deals that work
1: work. That's really yeah. Fun. The other thing I would tell your investors getting into it: stay away from the consumer discretionary business because they can be knocked off by a kid in the garage or in China.
0: Yeah, that's it's interesting because there's so many there's so many investment you know opportunities out there, and then and I think what happens with some folks is that they. They feel like it's a bit, but it's not really true. But they feel like those businesses are, are a business they can understand because they see they can see it. It's not some complex tech play or biotech or life science, or whatever, and, and that tri- drives into it because there, there's this wisdom out there that says you shouldn't invest in anything you don't understand, right? That's one of those traditional wisdom things. And, and sounds like 1980s thing. Yeah, I mean well, the world exactly. changed but a lot right? And and the point is, if you look at anything that's really taken off, it's there's nothing I can understand that at, at truly at a deep level whether it's in, in tech or biosciences or whatever. Yes, it's interesting what these lingering things that have people make.
1: So you follow the smart money into it, right? If you're following a world-class, best-in-class pharmaceutical family, they might know a little more than you do, don't you? That's right.
0: That's right. So piggyback. But
1: if it's your brother-in-law who's driving an Uber and heard about a stock tip or something... Mm, I don't know about that, Corey. Right? I don't know about that. And people who are stock tips—you would think that people uh, have gotten slaughtered than that. I no, they I, haven't. I, they haven't. No, they haven't. America, I, no, they no. haven't.
0: I remember I remember I I graduated law school in 1985, right? So I get the calls I would get from every broker or whatever back then, including Strata Oakmont brokers. And you think that's changed. It's changed in some ways, but it's but it hasn't. It's just
1: so now it was people on NFTs or Bitcoin or whatever. And what's it going to be next time? It's going to be like rice to AI or something, right? It's going to be all sorts of incredible things because that's the financial vision of the world today. Everything's going to be financialized.
0: Yeah. And listen, it's already and I'm not saying that there's it's all dumb money, but there's definitely spot money going into it as well. But if you look at the drop off, I did a recap of what was going on in deal investments and an in MA but at in in July for the end of June. And what you saw was a drop worldwide in, in investment deals and in MA deals, but AI was the big exception, right? AI yeah. investments were up 40 plus percent. And some of that's smart money and some of that's dumb money. And so, yeah, so talk to me a little bit more about you've alluded to various sectors. You've done real estate in the past, you do science stuff, you've talked about. Crypto, what and, and and we have so many confusing economic factors. At least if you listen to the mainstream talk, oh, inflation's was high, now it's coming it's down. It's all fake news. It's, it's all fake interest numbers. Interest going on, figure. blah blah blah, all yeah. this stuff. So, yeah, cut yeah. through it. First.
1: I when you look at it, I think when people are looking at what's happening today with interest rates or the world. We're in a world right now, and I think it was a 2016 election, where people just got fatigued by figures because they know that anything could be manipulated. So it's very difficult today for people to get their head around figures. Nobody really remembers numbers. Everybody remembers the Star Wars trilogy, but nobody remembers their own resting heart rate or any of their, their, their biomarkers, for lack of a better term. And what you're seeing right now is that people are gravitating more towards things where there's much more discretion and they have much more control, especially wealthier families. People think venture is risky. It is if you don't know what you're doing and you, and you violate the rules and you're in, investing in a first-time founder who's never been through this before and he doesn't and he's going to keep asking you for money and that's really not a good way to to really invest and then you become and then it's like having a child you never had that you're paying for and you hear all these stories about people who are like they they invest as angel investors which means they don't know what they're doing but they're going in and they're trying to consult and shape the company which means to me that are not happily married and they're getting involved with bunch of people <laughs> to get out of the house. That's really what it is. But I think people today, when they go into venture, they forget that the wealthy go into it because they can control the risk. In Martha Stewart went to jail for insider trading. Her stock went down 25%. Did you try calling Martha Stewart on the phone to find out why your 200 shares went down to 25%? No, because you have no control. Would she take your phone call? No, she was too busy with the Morgan Stanley guy or the, Morgan, or the Merrill Lynch broker, with whatever that was. But Moving forward to that, when you work with these companies, you have access to management. You can determine the price and the terms that you get in at, And that's control. And if you invest the right way, the way we do, that's control. You don't like what you have control. They have boards. And I look at it, and I'm going to go back to this, but if any, if, if I were to get a tattoo and I don't have one, one of the things I would write is, the cap table is the soul of the company. The board is its conscience. Okay, And if you remember that, And you look at the board and it's a bunch of cronies that are older than you and they don't know what's going on and they don't, you know, this is a tech company and they all look like they can't handle Excel. You should, that's not a good investment. That's a bunch of people with a great idea who are bored, who are looking to do something to enhance their identity. That's really what it comes down to, to tell people they're doing something that they wish they were really doing professionally. So you got to look at it that way. And if you look at the deals as far as, hey, how do I control the risk going into these deals? You have a lot more control. But you got to remember the liquid markets are very transactional. They are very impersonal. And I think the during the Bitcoin days where everybody was sneaking into your direct messages, I think a lot of people have been conditioned to think that this is a very transactional world. And really, it's very relational, Corey. Okay? It's very relational. All the investors I've known for at least well, some five years, some as long as 20 years, more than that. And there's a trust there. And the best relationships are formed when you have a good business relationship that turns into a personal relationship not the other way around
0: yeah you you said something earlier about not investing in real estate now but you anticipate getting back in the future yeah what other than the obvious which is maybe valuations cap rates come uh, changing and the interest rates going down going you know, up yeah. But, yeah yeah going up but what what is that basically what you're waiting for i think
1: had a, it, i think when you have low interest rates for this period of time it's low rates and cheap money accommodates the biggest losers and we saw this in certain asset classes like multifamily between the coast and middle America, Texas. There were a lot of people who went in there because they were yield starved, right? They weren't making any return on their treasuries or anything. They were going into these um, real estate syndications, mostly that were value added, class C to class B to class A. Yeah. And, they reasoned, and they And a lot of these guys overpaid because they were new, but they had no choice to they actually had a choice. They could have sat in the sidelines like I did, but they right, didn't. Because the, the lure of cheap money, yeah, it's a side right, call. That's right. Yeah. That's right. They saw their friends buying a 200-unit apartment complex. I can do the same thing in Austin. And sure enough, interest rates went up. And so We do not gravitate towards the lower-to-barrier sub-Africa classes. We love industrial and logistics. We'll be doing an industrial and logistics deal with a family in New York that I know well, who owns 8.5 million square feet of the stuff. So these are people who are pedigreed. And when I get into real estate deals, and I'm gonna mention my three rules here because I think it's important for your listeners, especially in real estate. There are three rules you never wanna violate. We know the two rules of venture, right? Which is founders that have multiple exits and a cap table, right? With strong investors. Not your uncle Louie, who's a rich plastic surgeon, no he's not going to be able to bankroll this thing forever you need like a real family office with discretionary capital to put this to make everything work so the three rules that i have for real estate is number one i want a sponsor that's been through at least two cycles okay nope 2008 was one this one hasn't really started yet okay here we are in october 23 you can see the witch behind me over here and the conference room the other thing is that I like to see and go back to the late '90s during the savings and loan crisis because this is how you can tell that separates the grown ups from the children, if you will, from the the sponsors and the operators. So that's important. Some people would be like, "I've been doing this for two years." I'm like, "Oh my god, <laughs> that's what, that's experience." No, no or, it's not. you're or yeah, up until. Yeah.
0: Or up until a couple of years ago, we we're doing it even for eight or ten years. And but but that was eight or ten you're, years. You're right. You're
1: right. And they're wiped out now. Those guys yeah. are out. Those yeah. guys are out. They're you're, they're they're in a world of hurt. Um wow. the second one is that I like to see a meaningful co-investment. The industrial deal we have, the family put in 50%, we put in 50%. We like that. It was good. Five percent is cute, ten yeah. percent is thoughtful. Anything else shows more conviction. All right. And the third rule is audited financials. I want to see, aud- if your track record's so good, pay $6,000 to have a third party, put it together so you can actually in a nice package, so audited financials that's how And then after that, it doesn't matter, right? Then you can get into the numbers and everything and, and really, but when you start looking at the top and remember, it's a people business, AI is not going to augment people on the real estate business. That's how you're able to really build a strong portfolio is by a judge of character. And a lot of people think, hey, it's a box with a bunch of apartments. What can go wrong? A lot can go wrong. That's what we've seen. Because people who are great brokers are not good financiers, nor are they follow the capital markets. And if you read Trump's first book, he talks about how he got wiped out because interest rates changed during the late 80s and the capital wasn't as plentiful.
0: Yeah, no, no question. What's in terms? So in terms of your funds, right? So you're co-investing with these families. In terms of the, tell me, talk a little bit about your fund and
1: is it? It's not a fund. It's not. It's a, it's, it's a multifamily office structure. We use SPVs for each investment that we go into. We do not like, yeah, Yeah. we don't like funds because the moment you take money from someone, it might be convenient for you to get it, for them to give it to you at that point, but they're always going to be looking for a return. And in the industry, we call that the IRR curse. So you have an IRR clock, an internal rate of return, because the return, the IRR, you can't bring to the bank. It's just a way of showing the performance of the investment under the judgment of time. It's when you have somebody takes money. If I take money from you, Corey, you're going to be like, Oh, are we in anything yet? Is it out? Is it out? Exactly. And that's yeah. not what we want.
0: Yeah, that's right. And and that's where, listen, the advantages, I've talked about this on the show as well. The advantages you have capital where you can act quickly, but it, but folks like you can raise capital quickly for the right SPVs. Correct. And, yeah. And then the other issue is, right, This pressure to deploy capital. What happens when you have pressure to deploy capital is that often folks lose deal discipline. and Make mistakes. They make, make mistakes,
1: right? Yeah. 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 Because you look it. at the economics. Yeah, I see that too. And it, and I think I do have a smaller balanced fund that's venture oriented called Dandrew Partners Encore Ventures, which is doing very well. But that was set up because my partner, Bill, had a lot of opportunities that we could backfill before the end of the year. And mm-hmm. using that term that I said before, my store elephants can't, we were able to have Outside returns because we were able to pinch into these deals where at the last minute. So we built it for speed. Got it.
0: So in the SPVs, who are you looking? At? In addition to your the family office partners, right? Where is the rest of the guy? You who are you raising the capital from? Is it all family office folks? Yeah, it's all family office
1: folks. Yeah, there are people who I've known for a while. We do have a few people who are very wealthy, affluent individuals. They're around maybe like the, the five to ten million dollar mark. But they they know what they're doing. They own operating businesses that throw off cash and they have trust that they want to, you know, what, this is I want to put my son's trust into this deal or SpaceX or something like that. So we try to stay away from middle-class investors because they're unsophisticated and they always have liquidity needs. And they're not any, we, we do not deal with those people at all. If you've never made a private placement, don't come to us first. <laughs> yeah, you got to read the handbook first because a lot of people don't understand this and they think, I gave you my money. I want it back. No, it's gone. It's in, it went to the salaries of this researcher here or it went to the T&I for this development here. They don't understand it. And when you have people who have a lot of money and their need is to get it out very quickly, then that's a good opportunity for me to have. And a lot of these families have a lot of discretionary money that's thrown off from operating companies, not with them working every day. These are people who throw off, who who have either made a lot of money or they have operating companies that throw off a lot of money, and it goes back to the history of time. Really, is that once you have, you received a tremendous amount of wealth, everybody becomes an investor. Back in the day in Europe, we used to call it merchant banking. This is how ING bearings is formed. This is how, not as old as you, Corey, like this is how Rothschild and company. And and, and there's an, actually, it is an interesting book if you really want to get into it, but like all these families like Goldman, they were basically, they sold window panes and all that money they used to buy mortgages and notes. And Marcus Goldman would carry the notes under his hat and everything and trade them for people. And he could smell a bad bill a mile away. It, it hasn't changed. And so today, people, it's normal. But if you look at someone who's had an exit, they're, they get so depressed after they buy their second Porsche and all the discretionary stuff they're sending. And I had this conversation with someone with $25 million in their bank account. And they're like, I don't know what to do next. Do I start another company? I'm like, are you that bored that you want to do this and go through the hell again? He's like, no, I want to be like you, Sal. And I'm like, all right, we're going to read this book. And then <laughs> we're gonna you're going to open my emails and you're going to follow along as we onboard you to see what, if you have any questions, and if this is something that does pertain to you. And sure enough, they do come on because that's what they want to do. It goes back all, if you look at, even Elon Musk has his own family office. This is, there used to be terms for rich families with lots of banker boxes in a room in their town home on 63rd Street on the Upper East Side. Now it's turned into something a little better where technology is taking over, but there's a lot of money out there globally, and that's why I'm in Miami. To invest in us because the us is still seen as a safe place globally for rich people to invest yeah yeah so you
0: held the, the book a couple of times most of our listeners most of our that we do have viewers, but most of us are listening. So let's make sure that, you, sure that they know we mentioned the bio. But let's talk about the book just for a couple of minutes. And I know it's not your first book, but we'll talk about this latest book. Anything yeah. else you want to talk about? And before we conclude here, I want to give you a chance to. Yeah.
1: So three years ago, when we were putting this together, just a, an annotated story, I was out east in the Hamptons with some friends and I was absolutely bored. And it was after my mom's funeral and I didn't know what to do. And I called my publisher and I said, you know what? I'm done of hemming and hawing. I'm going to write this book. And I wrote it like in a, in a spirited form because unlike the other ones that are a little more academic or how-to, this was more like a, it was more. It was a little more salacious. And what I did was like called in a lot of favors. And what I purposely designed the book around was to slaughter a lot of sacred lands and have big undeniable authorities corroborate that. For example, ex-bosses a Goldman Sachs, a Rockefeller that I sent on the board with Genius Biotechnology, Stephen Rockefeller, bookends a chapter here on impact investing. We talk about statement assets. What are statement assets? They're, they're what your friends say about you behind your back, that you own this team or that skyscraper. Nobody knows how much, but nobody's showing their 401k statement around, right? But they're showing pictures of their buildings and them standing in front of it. I know the game. And that's exactly why we wrote the book, is to be able to show that, look, whatever your financial advisor is telling you and, and all these things as far as the mainstream media, once you graduate to a certain point, you have to take control of your investments. You just can't sit in an ETF because that's not how you're going to make anything work. And and people get to this and they used to take a very junk drawer approach to it, like their health, for example. They they wouldn't do anything until there was a lot of pain or they felt an urge they would never go to a doctor. Here they're being a little more pre... pre, Here they have a lot of circumstances that causes them to be much more proactive. And today's family offices are not what you think they are. They're blended. There's kids with special needs, right? And so there are certain assets as the investment manager you have to be careful of where if this money's coming in, is for special needs or something, it has to be in something safe, right? A Class C to B conversion isn't safe. A lot of good things need to happen before you get a check. But if you're investing alongside a family with 50% equity in a Class A industrial facility, it's in a different it's a different entirely risk spectrum there. And that's something that they and I can go to bed at night, pulling the covers over our head, knowing that things are taken care of. So that book is put together. If you want an autographed copy, I did audible. I did record the Audible version myself and it's available on Audible, and it's called Investing Legacy, How the Top 1,000th of 1% Invest, not 1%, because that's everybody on the coast, right? Anybody in California or New York is a 1%, even the dishwashers are crying out loud. However, for the 1,000th of the percent, like the Zara co-founder, Amancio Ortega, or all of these very wealthy people, they have a different construct as it relates to how they manage their wealth, because they're not in wealth attraction. They're not in get-rich-quick mode anymore. They're in I got to hold it and build a legacy mode. And so if you if you do want an autographed copy of it, I do have a few copies that I left over for you, Corey, and your audience. They can go to investinglegacy.com forward slash book, and you'll get an autographed copy from the author, yours truly, sent out by USTS Mail. Other than that, it's available on Amazon and
0: Kindle too as well. Great. And I appreciate that offer to the audience. That's fantastic. Before I ask you my final question that we haven't talked
1: about that you want to uh, talk about or or mention or give out any information on anything else you're involved in? If people want to follow along in our family office, they can send, they can buy the book. (laughs) That's number one, how they can do that. But it would also give them an opportunity to peek behind the scenes of how we treat our investors. And I think when you see that, you start to see the interactivity and what we mean by how we communicate with, with our investors. I'd give my email out, but I know I'd be hit over the head with all sorts of spam yeah. for deals and things. And I don't think that's a good idea. No, I've been down go. this road before and I've gotten <laughs> sea- French fried on the beach. All the seagulls come out. And so we're not going to do that. Um, but if you do get on the book, if you go to investinglegacy.com slash book, we will make sure you're automatically onboarded onto our multifamily platform where you'll be getting the emails and you can see peek into the TP, if you will, Corey, about how we do things. Sounds great. Sounds great. Okay.
0: So my, my, my final question of the podcast is always about my highest value in life, my highest ideal is about freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom around the world, from people from oppression to why I've been an entrepreneur and haven't had a boss in decades and want to create my own life. And, and so that's what it means to me. What does freedom mean to you? And how does it impact
1: your life and business? Freedom has allowed me to do things I never thought in my wildest dreams I would be able to do, such as running a life science fund and doing this. But I can tell you the real fun in it is not, and I'll tell you why we buy, Why I, I was making fun of discretionary investments and everything. With life sciences, you're making an impact. You're making a discernible impact. And I'll give you an example of this. We have two companies that are going public this year, one of which is not public, being sold. One of which is a immunocology company that has that's going to be acquired. That has the ability to affect millions of lives. On my tombstone, not only will I make people rich, but I will affect basically millions of people because of my ability to champion people around causes, to raise money into these opportunities directly that nobody really wanted to invest into in the first place because they were scared of high school chemistry and biology. And one other, I'll tell you, in February, we received news. It was probably the best news I've received that one of our CEOs was the son of another CEO who was selling this company, this duo from MIT. They recently were the youngest team ever to receive FDA approval for a personal, for a PED which is basically a an artificial defibrillator, And it's, the name of the company is called the Vibe Solutions. And if you follow me on LinkedIn, I did some posts on it. That has the ability right now, if you think about it, unfortunately, for whatever reason, it's become the norm rather than the exception for players on the field to fall down and collapse. Right now, you've had a lot of these, since they've gotten PED approval and they've gone into commercial mode, they've been able to sell a lot of these to, you know, the fleet accounts, municipalities, schools. There are parents who are wealthy who bought 10 of these units for their, you know, whatever gym in their church or something like that. And it's great because it's the impact and the revolution that you never see. It happens slowly and all of a sudden it comes up real quick. And I think pretty, and it looks pretty much like this if you look at it, (laughs) clear, but you power it through your iPhone and it democratizes the ability for people to save lives. And one of the things that I look at is that the manufacturer of this, the CEO he has the eyes of God, for lack of a better term, where he can see how many times this thing's been used. Right and when you look at that, you talk to an investor and say this has been used a thousand times. That's huge, right? That's a thousand lives saved or attempted to be saved. We don't know what you know what the full number is, and that's something that comes in later in the audits and the follow up calls. Like an in insurance, they have a what we figure that out. But the, the ability to say that I helped save that kid on the field because of the investment that I made for two hundred thousand dollars into this company, you know, that this investor made it gives them a sense of pride because not so much now is it the making the zeros or extra money, it's the bragging rights that go along with the fact that your friends or your kids say, oh, my parents inve- invested into that at the time of kids were dying on the field and they were able to save a lot of lives as a result of that. And now their kids have a library named after them. Does that make sense? Love it, love okay. it. Okay. Dal showing thanks for, this, for being such a great guest. I'll Thank you. Thank you. Corey, your star. Thank you so much. Anytime.
0: Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. The Deal Den is a place where entrepreneurs, high-level executives, and business leaders come together, support each other's growth and success, and share what's working best, as well as what challenges we are facing right now you will get input not only but from all of our members. We collaborate and serve each other. To join us, go to coreycupford.com slash deal day.